Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Still Watching. We are now covering Falcon in the Winter Soldier. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. If you were just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, what we do is Richard and I pick a show that we're sort of obsessively watching, and we break it down on a really granular level week by week. Uh, usually we have some emails from you all. You can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, your Falcon and the Winter Soldier thoughts going forward. But most of the emails I got this week were still about WandaVision. So with love and respect to that show, we are going to roll onto this one. That's not to say we're never going to talk about WandaVision. In fact, I have a few WandaVision things to say uh, pretty pretty soon in, in this first section here. But Richard and I are going to break down the episode and kind of talk about it. I have some plans to talk about it in, in the larger landscape of like Disney Plus shows and, and whether or not we should even call this television, etc. Um, and then we will hear from the show's head writer, Malcolm Spellman. Uh, he's our interview this week. Great interview. Uh, that's all him. And then in the back half of the podcast, you will hear from Anthony Brazdekin, where we will break down some of the sort of comic bookier elements of, of the show and of this episode. So Richard, let's just start at the beginning. Uh, we only got one episode of this show as opposed to the three we got for WandaVision. 
So going off a one episode impression alone, how are you feeling about the show? Um, I would say curious, um, mildly intrigued, maybe. Um, I think, you know, it's just a trick of timing that this next great MCU Disney plus show, uh, comes so soon after WandaVision. Like, I don't, maybe that was always the plan to have these releases staggered pretty closely together, but I know WandaVision wasn't even supposed to come out first, but it was kind of ready to go, um, because of pandemic stuff. So yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's not as creatively enticing, I guess, as, um, WandaVision just because it feels a bit closer to what we're used to from the movies. Um, But, you know, again, I was saying this to a colleague and sort of maybe more skeptical viewer of Marvel content. He has to watch a lot of it for work, but it is like it is kind of cool in a maybe in a, in a sort of sinister way that like I do get pretty excited to be like, oh, there these are these two like kind of second tier characters. And now we like the, the Marvel thing is so complete that we can like spend time with them and they have backstory and all this stuff, even though they weren't main characters. Um, it's just a testament to like very thorough world building. And I sort of appreciate that from a, I don't know, creative sense, I guess. Yeah. It's um, I see it, you know, Kevin Feige who runs, you know, Marvel studios, who is now the mastermind behind these Disney plus shows. I, he, often has this mentality, and we talked about this a little bit in WandaVision, of like, um, I can fix this. I can, whatever it is that we might have done not so perfectly in the past, let me have another crack at it, and I can do it better. So, like, you know, people have talked about how Avengers Age of Ultron, um, a film that uh, is not super beloved in the MCU, now feels different knowing you know, given that it is the birthplace of Wanda and Vision, you know what I mean? Or or uh, Civil War, you've got some love, you know, it just all means a little bit more with these side stories on Disney Plus where we dig into everything. And so looking at a character like Falcon, you know, Bucky, Winter Soldier, was very integral to a couple films. But Falcon, as played by uh, Anthony Mackie, Sam Wilson, really, he shows up in Winter Soldier, he's, he's, very instrumental in Winter Soldier, that he's pretty sidelined for the rest of his appearances because the rest of his appearances are all in big team-up movies, you know? And well, he has that one he... fight in Ant-Man, right? Right, yes, yes. The Ant-Man fight also exists. Um, but, he, you know, he's just kind of, like, backgrounded um, in a way where that character is one that I don't know how people have, like, a massive emotional attachment to. But I believe they probably will at the end of this series, you know? Yeah. And that's an opportunity that they have here on these shows. And I did, I want to talk a little bit about these, about these shows as TV shows. So TV shows, as we usually understand them is there's like a network or a studio that is, you know, producing the show, but then there's someone called the showrunner, right? Who is, you know, the executive producer, the head writer in charge of sort of everything. And the Disney Plus shows are interesting because the, the showrunner on all of these shows, as as we learned talking to the WandaVision creatives, are like 
the core trio of Marvel executives, which is Victoria Alonso, Louis Desposito, and Kevin Feige. They're the showrunner, and that's interesting. That's not usually how TV is made. And then you've got a head writer, that's Malcolm Spellman, who we talked to, and then you've got a director, uh, Carrie Scoglin, directed all of these uh, episodes. And so it's just a different creative creativity engine. It's the Marvel machine, which has been very successful in films for a very long time, applying its formula to television. And that's kind of fascinating to me. Do you have any thoughts or feelings about about this different way of making television? Well, I mean, I, I think as a writer, I I do appreciate that TV is often the you know so called writer's medium. Right. Whereas on a movie, you know, a script is often changed, you know, completely uh, without the consult, you know, consultation of the original scriptwriter. Um, whereas TV is more honoring the writing process in writers' rooms and showrunners and all that. I mean, showrunners do a lot more than just write. There's, it's a big kind of management job as well. Yes. Um, but if we're talking about management, the big management story of Marvel is brand management and continuity management and the management of synergy and scaling, you know, and that, that stuff is probably not going to fall to an individual writer brought in for one job. You know, the three people you mentioned who kind of run things at Marvel are the keeper keepers of, of all of that sort of alchemy secret sauce kind of bigger vision, you know? Um, so I, I would say that like, on as a kind of general idea on principle i i would prefer the idea of 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 a writer or writers really digging in and having control over the arc of what they're making but for this isolated example i understand why it is and i think that with a show like this which is less you know high concept than wandavision that sense of it belonging to a larger narrative um i think it'll probably be crucial to appreciating it yeah yeah i think that's true and i i think that um the you know the last thing i'll say about this is there were there have been discussions for the last two weeks about the wandavision finale and whether or not i'm a, a main topic that's that's come burbling up is this idea of like was wanda uh held accountable enough for the damage she did in this town or, you know, did she get off a little too easy? And I guess it's just not even a conversation I know even know how to have in a show that, yes, that was a series finale. There's probably not going to be more One Division. But it's not really a series finale because, you know, whatever the cost of what she did in One Division is going to reverberate through her ongoing appearances in these Marvel properties. So it's not, you know, in the films, they have had things pay off several films down the line. So you can't really contain it to that episode discussion. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I, it's, it's, I just don't know that how useful it is, at least from my perspective, to think of this even as um, television. And I don't even mean that in the way that like some TV creatives have been like, Oh, this is really a seven hour movie. Like it's, it's even more strange than that in terms of the way in which we are used to thinking about television. So all that's to say, yeah. Got it. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like a, um, an act, a separate, separate act or something related act playing during, during intermission or something. It's, it, 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 it 
it is part of the sh- of the bigger show, but it's also its own thing. But it's also not. You know, it's a very funny kind of bridge. I'm I'm so hesitant to use the c word, but like it is kind of bridge content. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's use another c word. It's comics. Like this is how comics yeah, have been doing it yeah. forever. Um, where you have little runs, little series. You follow a character here. You follow a character there, and and their storyline, you know, winds up getting paid off over here and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah. So uh, the the other thing I will say, though, Marvel is has become so used to making films a certain way and and mastered it for what they want it to be, right? Um, but it, there are some challenges with the logistics of television. So my understanding from sources uh, is that Falcon and the Winter Soldier got a major overhaul uh, sometime between the completion of all the scripts. And production, and perhaps even some of that major haul, major overhaul, continued in the COVID pause because there was a big COVID pause in production, right? So I think this show, and that is something that that Marvel is quite used to doing. They they're constantly revising. They've got built into every schedule for their films. They've got a massive reshoot window uh, where they refine the story and perfect it. That's that's what has made them so successful. They, they think that's how they think of storytelling. It's so much harder to do that with the TV series. And there's a part of me that thinks that this first episode, some largest chunks of it might have come before that revision happened because it doesn't really seem to match a lot of what we've seen in the advertisement, which is a heavy reliance on this buddy, uh, buddy comedy action stuff. Do you know what I mean? And, and right. our our characters don't even spend a single second of screen time together in this episode. And maybe that was always the case. Maybe it was always just la- laying track. But there's a part of me that's like, well, they shot that. They they put together that big Falcon action sequence and they had to use it. They can't just throw it. You know, what are they going to do? So I don't know. It's just interesting to think about the challenges of making television the Marvel way, you know, so. Yeah, I, I I also think that there's something, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of character interaction in this first episode, not with each other, but mm-hmm. in so many ways they feel very isolated, like from themselves, from the world, like what it just feels very like, and 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 in in promo materials we've seen you know a host of other characters, uh, from other Marvel movies like Emily Van Camp's character kind of like pop up. And, you know, I don't think this episode sets up that like that could never happen, but right. it, it, it totally feels maybe like not sustainable over five or six episodes. It's six episodes, right? Um, yeah. So I'll, yeah, I'll be curious to see what that kind of shift is uh, in ensuing uh, installments. For me, not all of this first episode worked. Um, but uh, as you say, my, my, I'm emerging from it with like a, I'm really excited to see this come together. <laughs> uh, rather than I'm not excited to see what happens next. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so we get, you know, we get a lot of, uh, seeds planted here. We meet, uh, Lieutenant Torres, who is, um, our like, Jimmy Woo of this series, our guy in the chair sort of uh, figure. Um, and we get some, some context for what Falcon is struggling with and what Bucky is struggling with and, and a big, you know, a big twist at the end. So where do you want to start, you know, plot specific wise in terms of talking about this episode? Uh, I don't know. I guess we could just start 
you know, we'll just go via the title and do Falcon first and then Winter Soldier. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Falcon, uh, Falcon's doing some missions uh, for the army. He's still working for the government, uh, maybe doing some stuff that, that is goes in, in between the cracks of, of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, and in his work there, he meets Lieutenant Torres. They have a, a, a cute little bonding moment. He give he decides to give up the shield to the Smithsonian. That is a decision he's made. He doesn't want to carry the shield. It belongs in a museum. That's where it's going to be. Uh, he he is trying to help save the family shrimping boat uh, for his sister and his nephews and himself. Um, and then uh, he finds out about this terrorist group, the the Flag Smashers. And via Lieutenant Torres. And then uh, in the final act, he sees the shield go to someone else. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Wyatt Russell. Oh, should have known. Anyway, um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a blend of, of the very personal with, with you know, sort of the action Jackson uh, heavy uh, stuff that we might expect from Falcon. Yeah, that opening, you know, sequence over Tunisia or wherever it is, it, it's really fun. Um, it feels like what would be the opener of like one of the cinematic, you know, movies. Yeah. So like hats off to Disney for spending a ton of money on, on, on whatever, so what, much money. what maybe is TV. Maybe, I don't know what it is, but, um, but yeah, it's interesting, you know, that we had talked during the WandaVision, uh, run of episodes that like we, uh, that we both liked that this was, and some, some listeners had written in to say the same thing that, that this wasn't, uh, that WandaVision wasn't like so steeped in the sort of military industrial stuff. And uh, it felt like a good way for the brand even to kind of disentangle itself from those complications. Let's say, you know, they've, they've consulted with the military to, you know, there is an argument to be made and it has been made by some that it's kind of militaristic propaganda, you know, uh, and here we have this show kind of leaning back heavily into that stuff, but both, Falcon and the Winter Soldier in different ways are questioning the sort of the, the, their identity as having been, or still, you know, still being, um, dutiful soldiers for, you know, X agency, whether mm-hmm. it's Hydra in, in Bucky's case or the U S military in, um, Falcon's case. Um, so if the show wants to kind of mull over those problems that that those associations what they stand for what it means to you know quote do you know be in service to your country or whatever uh when that country is often doing bad things i think that's that kind of metaphor is much clearer on the on the winter soldier side of things but um yeah i i welcome at least some kind of internal analysis of of the whole franchise's relationship with um state sanctioned violence and uh, other kind of things like that. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I th- there has been such great stuff written about the connection between the military and Marvel, um, and um, I I have a lot of questions about it, especially as it pertains to some of the films like Captain Marvel or Iron Man. The Captain America films, however, interestingly, have always been maybe maybe not the first one, but 
Winter Soldier, Civil War have always been about interrogating the government and interrogating military power, right? Like Winter Soldier, you've got Hydra is infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. There are Nazis in S.H.I.E.L.D. And Cap has to like take that down. And that trans that carries over to Captain America Civil War when he's like, I don't want to sign this contract that says I will do what the government tells me to. I've seen the government corrupted. Like, I don't know how I feel about the being the arm of that. You know, so even even when it was like a all-American boy like Steve Rogers, this idea of like what it means to be Captain America um, has been something those films, those better Marvel films have been questioning. And then when you put that question on the shoulders of a black man in America, that is the really interesting thing that this show has the opportunity to dig into. Yeah. I, I think that one pushback that some people have had about that sort of those moments in the earlier Captain America films where he's sort of like questioning, you know, pledging ultimate fealty to the U S uh-huh. government is that there, it also sort of indulges another thing inherent in superhero stories. You know, I, you know, I know the Incredibles had come under a lot of scrutiny for this, like this kind of objectivist and Randian kind of, um, thing about the, like special people and having, to, you know, having to like own their specialness and, 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 uh, you know, assume the, you know, their, their, their ordained mantle as sort of like Ubermenches overall, you know, um, I, I think there, there was a little bit of a libertarian sort of fantasy kind of playing out in some mm-hmm. of that, some of that Captain America discourse. Um, I can see that. you know, because, we, because it, it, it's, it's, it's an issue or a, a core thing inherent to this whole genre, which is like, there are institutions, both, you know, governmental or evil or whatever, like always kind of trying to bend these super heroic people to their whims. And the people can break out of those shackles, so to speak, but they are still sort of special and know that they have this calling and isn't that its own form of sort of dominance and to, to even like know that about oneself, you know, um, so I, I don't think that Marvel is going to get to a point with this show where they are completely, you know, um, delving so deep in the, into the core identity of, of everything, they, they the stories they tell, and then sort of question them or subvert them. But I do think a little bit of, you know, internal audit uh, is welcome. And it seems like that show, this show is doing that at least. Yeah, I think I think we're going to be, um, as Malcolm Spellman said in our interview, I think we're going to be digging into the history of Captain America and the Shields um, from a perspective we've not seen before, mm-hmm. um, and that will hopefully sort of illuminate some of those narratives uh, that came before. But I, I'm I'm with you. I'm not saying like um, Marvel was ever this very like deeply um, <laughs> uh, anti-government storytelling. Um, but if there was ever opportunity for that, I think it came in these Captain America films. Um, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, for Um, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, um, the other thing I want to talk about is something that occurred to me between us, you know, covering WandaVision and this show is, is this idea that like, (laughs) so much happens in Avengers Endgame. Um, not the least of which, uh, you know, half of half of the world's population snapped out of existence 
uh, is gone for five years and then comes back. And like some people handle that transition well. Like Monica Rambeau does a pretty good job just being like, oh, I was gone for five years and my mom died. I'm upset, but I am back on back at the job. I'm doing my work. And in and in Spider-Man Far From Home, which takes place eight months after Endgame, those kids are just back at school going on a European vacation. Doesn't really make a ton of sense, but that's their that was sort of their way of sidestepping having to really grapple with the the global calamity that would be something like uh, what they're calling the blip, right? Right. Uh but here we are. <laughs> um Bucky's in a, in a lot of therapy. Uh, cause he has other stuff going on, but like this, this idea of the blip and the economic impact it would have on people. Um, and, and the, and the true grieving that needs to happen here. And I was just thinking about how all these shows, these first three shows, at least WandaVision, Falcon, the Witch Soldier, and Loki are about grieving things that were lost in Endgame. Like WandaVision is about really grieving vision this is going to be about grieving steve rogers and figuring out how to move on from there and then loki someone i was like except for loki because he's just like what's death lol but someone was like maybe loki's going to be about grieving the loss of that evolved loki because we're reverting to like a trickster i don't care loki so um so I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about this idea of like, of, of taking time to grieve of the grief that's reverberating uh, through the MCU here? Well, this was an issue that came up uh, across the street at DC when Man of Steel came out. Um, and there was another huge city destroying fight. And I, I remember reading things. I wrote something uh, to this effect too. Like, I, you know, people got, people were expressing a, a sort of, they were sick of seeing like these scenes, these extended sequences where like, you know, a safe assumption is that tens, tens of thousands of people are dying and it's just treated like window dressing. You know, it's just like, oh, okay, like, look, he, he, they crashed into the skyscraper and then the skyscraper fell down and it's like, right, but there were probably thousands of people in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so Snyder tried to, Zack Snyder tried to address that in ba- in the beginning of Batman Superman by having Batman like actually on the ground when those buildings were collapsing and seeing the horror of it right? and reacting to it. Marvel has done that too with, there's the thing the, like the, in Lagos, don't they blow up in a, something by accident? And right. Some, yeah. The the consequences of Ultron right. is like basically what civil war is about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, a you know, I, I think that, the the more mature the older that the this this kind of tradition gets on film and in tv the more they have to kind of talk about that and 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 not ignore it and they have done that so far but this feels like the 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 chance they're really giving themselves to like sit down with it and not just like oh i've been violent in you know in especially in winter soldier's case like but what what have i actually been doing like what what, how how have i been kind of addressing my own life and my my needs and the people around you know the my loved ones needs you know in the case of falcon like uh not only is is there a toll of like all of the battle that he's been through and the people he's lost but like he had you know he he was he was snapped away and then his sister was struggling with this business but also he goes to the bank and he doesn't really have any income and it's just like the he has been chewed up by this whole thing uh not in the same way but like not dissimilar to like the other collateral damage of all of this fighting 
um, even yeah. though he was at the center of it. Yeah. Yeah. The Bucky stuff more than anything else really works for me in this episode. The, the, both the therapy sequence and the two sushi, uh, bar, uh, moments. A lot of that has to do with like Sebastian Stan, like that, the, the character of Bucky has always been extremely compelling to me. Um, I think Sebastian Stan is, is uh, really, really good in the part and something that he has been able to do recently post brainwash is try to put a little humor back into the part. And, um, and I think he's really carrying a lot of that in this episode. So what did you think? Yeah, he's great. I mean, I, 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 I like that kind of conflicted character. I, I think it's maybe a little bit neat or something that like, Oh, he's befriended the father of the guy he killed. Like, but I guess the people, someone like him who has been so steeped in like, uh, battle and fighting for, you know, a hundred years or whatever. Like it, it, it makes sense that the only way he knows how to process that kind of thing is in like the bluntest way possible, which I mean, he's not being like forthright with this guy, but like he's, he's just like kind of abusing himself in some ways by like befriending this person. And um, I think that sort of torment self-destructive kind of thing um, is played well by Sebastian Stan. He's done it in other series, you know, I don't know if you ever saw King's, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Gossip Girl. Well, Gossip um, Girl, too, I... <laughs> sure. Uh, yes, Kings with um, Ian McShane. Yeah, yeah. That was a, a really strange but interesting uh, network show from, what, God, over 10 years ago now. Um, yeah, NBC, I think, yeah. Where he played the sort of tortured prince of a modern-day American kingdom, essentially, um, and was closeted you know, having these kind of furtive sexual affairs with men and like, you know, and, and he just has that kind of like pained pretty boy face for it. He sells it well. Um, and I think especially with winter soldier that like the first captain America movie came out, what, like a decade ago. So like yeah. Bucky mm-hmm. Barnes has been in our consciousness almost from the beginning of this whole franchise. Um, so to kind of be able to sit at dark bars with him and, and brood with him finally, you know, at length, <laughs> uh, it feels justified. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. When Sebastian Sam was signed, uh, this is certainly not true of every character they signed to the MCU, but he was signed to a multiple film contract. So they knew, I mean, they knew at the very least we want to do Winter Soldier, but also like both Bucky and Sam in the comics are Captain America. So at one at one point or another. So I think a lot of people thought that perhaps he would wind up being Captain America. Um, be based mostly on that on the multi-film contract he signed um and then when they wound up using him the way that they did which is sort of like this antagonist thing in winter soldier and then this like you know he's kind he's not the MacGuffin, but he's kind of the MacGuffin in uh in civil war this thing to be protected like like if captain if steve is saving the cat um he's it's bucky bucky's a cat that he's saving in civil war you know and um and so we are uh, we are incredibly emotionally attached to Bucky because Steve is incredibly emotionally attached to Bucky. He will he will give everything up to protect this guy. Um and yeah, can I share a detail with you that I found out watching some old Anthony Mackie Sebastian Stan uh interview? Sure. <laughs> Sebastian Stan has to dip his arm in a bucket 
of KY jelly so that he can squeeze it into the thing that he wears as his metal arm uh, in the films. Just thought I would put that on your radar. Before you got to the thing that he wears, I thought you were going a very different direction. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I that's and to think that he's been doing that for how many years now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, yikes. I, I don't know if it's better with a new arm. The new arm is the, the, the he got a new arm right. in Wakanda and it's this cool, like black sort of shot through with gold vibranium thing. But, um, yeah, I think it's still a bit of an arduous process for Sebastian to put the arm on this. In this episode, he's wearing jackets the whole time. So we don't, we don't have to see the, the arm at all. Jackets and gloves. <laughs> no, no arm. Well, unless we saw it. No, we must've seen it in the, uh, the flashback dream sequence. Right. So. But yeah, the old titanium arm. The whole, you know, who is Captain America? Who can be the next Captain America thing? Like, obviously, the end of this episode, there is some random white guy who has yeah. taken up the mantle under the government's kind of, uh, you know, it was their idea. Um, I think that that's the most obvious way to access these questions of like military and government and stuff like that. Is that like what you know at a time when we are really still engaged in a, in a, a struggle against a certain kind, you know, ethno nationalism in the United States. Like the idea of a captain America is sort of sinister from the get, you know, as a propaganda tool, as a, as a tool of might and violence and whatever. Um, and yet obviously in the world of these movies and these shows, captain America did good and, and, and saved things and helped people. So it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, I guess, you know, a double-edged sword or whatever. Um, and so you, you have a character like Sam kind of rejecting it because he doesn't think he's worthy of it or whatever it is, or he's tired. He wants to go back to his normal life. Um, but also worrying about what happens to that legacy. So he's kind of torn between these things kind of as Bucky might be too. Like, am I good? I was bad. I'm sort of good now. Um, what is my allegiance? What does that allegiance mean? Um, Mm -hmm. so I could see this, this whole run of episodes kind of leading up to a decision about which of them wants that responsibility and because it's not just a responsibility in terms of like, I have to go fight this thing, but it's also like, I can't be corrupted by it. Um, and Bucky certainly Mm -hmm. knows about being corrupted by something. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, this idea, (laughs) um, Steve Rogers is maybe my favorite character in the MC. I love Steve Rogers. I love Chris Evans and Steve Rogers. Captain America Winter Soldier is my favorite movie. I just love Cap. When he comes out of the shadows uh, in Infinity War and like grabs, uh, when, when you're, when you're Bay Pro- Proxima Midnight throws a spear into the darkness and Captain America catches it and steps out. <laughs> I think I like started crying when I saw that. Cause it was just sort of like, he's here. Like of all the like heroes that I believe in, it's Captain America. It's Steve Rogers, you know, and um, and that's like the least cynical I ever am is when I'm thinking about Steve. And that is a that's a that's no mean feat of the MCU, because like I'm not a person who like considers themselves awfully patriotic. I, you know, I'm not a stars and bars kind of person, but like I get downright misty thinking about Steve Rogers. And that's um yeah, that's that's an accomplishment, I think. Yeah, and I think the careful distinction there is that it's Steve Rogers. It's not necessarily yeah. Captain America, which like he right. kind of. I mean, they they were they were synonymous until Endgame, right? 
uh, or the end of Endgame. Um, and now it's this big, this bigger question. And I think, you know, um, around the time of like the election and everything that ensued afterward, there was a lot of looking back into history about like, was it Watergate and the Nixon presidency that made everyone, not everyone, but made a lot of people around the country cynical about politics and politicians in a way they hadn't been before. Yeah. Maybe there was a dawning understanding of it is not the office itself that is noble. It's who's in it. And, and if they are able to be noble within it, I don't, you know, I think you could argue that like no president got it perfectly right. Um, some did better than others, but like, it's a similar thing with a captain America. It's this idea of like an, an authority and police and, you know, military might like just because that power is there doesn't mean it's good. It has to be wielded by someone good. And so if you put someone who isn't good in that same seat of power and they earn that, they have that respect, um, what do they do with it? And, and, and I think that's an, this is an, that's an interesting echo of the Amazon show, uh, the boys, the boys, which is about just flat out, bad, awful, narcissistic, murderous superheroes, you know, who are owned by a corporation. Um, Marvel's not going to go that route, but they are certainly, you know, posing some of those questions. I am similarly obsessed with Homelander <laughs> in a different way yeah. uh, as I am with Captain America. Um, all right. So let's talk about, uh, I think the last thing I want to talk to you about is, is this figure that shows up at the end? Um, like, I'm assuming you don't know much about this character. Or maybe you've done some Googling. I don't know. But like, what? where are you with this new Captain America that we meet at the end of the episode? Yeah, I don't know who that is. I don't know anything about it. Uh, this is Wyatt Russell, uh, Kurt Russell's kid. Oh, okay. I didn't, know uh, I didn't re- recognize him. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and he's playing a character named John Walker, who has been a character in the comic books known as U.S. Agent. So we will see how that turns out. But like, are you getting like good vibes? No, <laughs> how no, are you no. feeling about no, this? No, bad vibes. Very, very bad. Bad vibes. Yeah. Bad vibes. Well, because or... also, you know, um, I don't want to give too much credulousness to like the marketing campaign for this show versus what the show is actually doing. But like, you know, there has been indication that this is a, this season is going to, this series is going to get into like issues of like contemporary race in America. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen some hesitancy from people online who are like, I don't know if I really want Marvel to kind of deal with that stuff. Um, but you have a black Avenger seeding the shield to the public good and, you know, whatever, and then replaced by, and, and the government kind of willingly accepts that sort of resignation in a way. Uh, and then this white guy is kind of installed instead um, mm-hmm. without, you know, cons- any of Sam's kind of, you know, consent or anything like that. Um, even though like he was bequeathed this thing. Um, so I think, yeah, you're, you're all, you're also then getting into issues of, of race and of uh, the way that America a certain subset of America wants to be publicly seen. And oftentimes that is white and male and cis and straight and strong. Right. And blonde and blue eyed and whatever it is that Wyatt Russell is. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So that is, that is John Walker. That's the end of the episode. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Oh, just, just really quickly. I want to know what, what do you know about the super soldier serum? Say it three times fast and then tell me what you know. About it. Um, I, I've tried it. I tried a couple times on fire Island. Like if I was feeling like, <laughs> if it, like kind of like the middle of the week, I was a little bored. I've tried it, but like, uh-huh. it's not for me, like the teeth grinding, you know, all that. So it's expensive. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. 
Oh, Super Soldier Serum. Uh, this is what was injected into Steve Rogers. And uh, Bucky also got a dose, which is how he's been able to survive as long as he has. Um, he didn't get the same. Like, only Steve got the, like, the good good, right? And then Bucky got it cut with something weird in Hydra. Um, and then Bruce Banner also um, was injected. But he, like, it was Super Soldier Serum and, like, Gamma rays combined um but we we see a, a guy in this episode a masked guy in this episode who is throwing people around in a very super soldier serum kind of way so i think um i think we should just have that um that concoction that cocktail on our brain as we watch uh the series go on all right the super um, soldier serum anything else yeah i just wanted to briefly mention um if anyone was watching the scenes with Sam and his sister and we're like, who's that actress? It's Adepero Oduye. Uh, she is great in a lot of things, but if, if you're curious, go seek her out in a movie called Pariah directed by Dee Rees, who did yeah. uh, Mudbound. Um, it's a great movie. Kim Waynes is excellent in it. Um, so yeah, if you're curious to see what her, she's like in a lead role when she was a bit younger, uh, Pariah is definitely worth a watch. That's a fantastic film. That's a good recommendation. I would also say that, like, on a on a more like basic film rec- recommendation, you know, they've said that the Falcon and Winter Soldier, I think, is um, you know, uh, the title is a cute reference to the, I believe, the seventies films uh, Falcon and the Snowman, but um, but what they're really riffing on here, you know, if WandaVision is like grief through the lens of American sitcom, this is grief through the lens of um, buddy action in the vein of Lethal Weapon. Uh, midnight run rush hour 48 hours etc that's what that's the vibe that they're wanting to hit um so if you haven't seen any of those movies a lot of them are are great watches uh check the ratings on them though a lot of them are are if you're younger and listening um but but i'm excited to get into that gear uh, for this series along with all of the other sort of chewier um racial identity uh, themes that, that you were talking about there. So let's see how they do it. <laughs> Anything else, Richard, until next week? Uh, no, that's it. All right. Uh, so we'll be back uh, with Richard next week. And now let's hear from uh, head writer, Malcolm Spellman. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. So I want to start by asking you, um, our listeners like to do a lot of extra homework. So if you were to recommend one comic book and one movie, Marvel or otherwise, for them to read or watch to prepare for this, what would you say? I would say Civil War for the movie. And Mm -hmm. I think the comic book series is called Truth, although we still veered pretty far away from it. Um, But that one, none of those, you know how the MCU is, we veer yeah from the comics but uh uh that yeah those would be the two 
When I was talking to um, Matt Shackman and Jack Schaefer about their work on WandaVision, they talked about like how collaborative their work was together. Was that a similar dynamic with you and Carrie? Were you working together on sort yeah. of shaping the show? Yeah, to- totally. We we were. It was a family. Was she in the writers' room? Were you on set? Like how how close was that collaboration? Yeah, it was. It was. We there was an initial phase of writing mm-hmm. that was just a writers' room, but as soon as we could get to her we brought her in and she was right there with us every, you know, every step of the way. Um, and then I, and I, and I did go to set. Um, it was very warm vibes with everybody. Excellent. Um, Winter Soldier just happens to be my favorite movie and I rewatch it. My favorite Marvel movie. I rewatch it all the time. And Probably my uh, favorite too. <laughs> excellent. So um, tell me if I'm way off base, but I felt like you were doing, they, you were doing something in this episode where there were these little like cues uh, when we see Sam do things that felt like visual callbacks to Winter Soldier, which to my interpretation means that if he has any doubts about whether or not he should be Captain America, what the show is telling us is that he's already the Captain America. He might doubt that he should be. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does. But I got to tell you, his doubts are way realer and way more grounded in a truth than that meaning by this movie does not absolve i mean sorry this series does not absolve anything sam will have to confront his doubts Mm -hmm. but his doubts will also exist through the voice of other characters who are very very compelling and by the end of the series it's not gonna be the decision is not obvious and there isn't a right or wrong answer because the truth is the stars and stripes are not obviously appropriate for a black person to take on. To that end, I think the inclusion in this um, episode of the of the Flag Smashers, which is like an expansion of this um, comic book villain into this sort of bigger group, it's so fascinating because, of course, this show is wanting to engage. We're not in the world where ultra-nationalism, Captain America, is automatically something we're excited about, Right. And this idea of an anti-nationalist group, which is what the Flag Smashers are, um, or the you know, a world without borders, um, makes them a more complicated villain. Is is that is that or or are they villains? So so how were you thinking about that idea of the Flag Smasher concept uh, in this world you're creating here? So we wanted this, and I hope we achieved an extremely relevant series that is of this moment and creates heroes who are of this moment and Mm -hmm. the stories are of this moment and the villains are of this moment. So the first thing we did was we took the blip or the snap, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. and said three and a half billion people have suddenly reappeared after five years away. That is a global problem. That is a problem that unifies everybody or defies divides everybody depending on how they want to perceive it but it's inescapable right the villains and there are multiple villains if that's what you want to call them are all responding to that none of their intentions are born from anything diabolical they are all born from this global reality that if you look at our real world today it's very very similar and these villains all believe that they are heroes um, and we we worked our hardest to keep that real 
through the season. At no point do they twist mustache. At no, you know, what I'm saying like they they mm-hmm. always can sit there and provide an argument that the audience and our heroes are like, damn, that's a that's a legitimate position as to why you're doing what you're doing. Right. Because in in the real world today, you know, what I'm saying I think everybody's sort of confronting that our realities. Uh, 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 that keep us divided or whatever, right, are very, very, the positions that oppose are very, very real to whoever the given faction is. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And and that always makes for more interesting storytelling. You know, like you think about, uh, I think people responded so well to the end of Black Panther when you think of a character like um, the one Michael B. Jordan's playing and you're like, I can sort of see it from your point of view your method i have some questions about but your point of view you know it's not an uh completely out there ideology do you know what i mean yeah black panther was everything and the hashtag killmonger was right Mm -hmm. gets to what you're talking about yeah and we talked about that hashtag a lot in this room because uh uh black panther was an african character and and still dealt with many issues that anyone, any person of color is going to deal with or whatever, right? right? And Killmonger was American in his point of view. And that speech that Killmonger gave, we we had that speech printed up. We that we were like, this is this series is born from that spirit, and we are not going to say Killmonger is wrong. You know what I'm saying? Again, his methods may have been, yeah. but that speech, you can't front on it. It just is what it is, and it is the truth. I had this almost visceral reaction watching the scene where um, this is where I'm going to ask you a question about the end of the episode. You can decide whether or not you want to uh, say anything about it. But uh, the scene where um, Sam is watching the DOD name the new captain um, at the end of the episode, and you just see, you know, Anthony's face, this close up on his hands. I had this like visceral reaction to many moments I've had watching the news and feeling sick. Um, and I was just wondering if you can recall sort of how that moment was scripted or, or when you were working on it, what you want to achieve. We take great pride in those moments are going to occur for all the characters, but in particular for Sam mm-hmm. throughout the season. And many of them will get much more intense and will be much more clear what the reference points for the real world are. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we worked hard to land those moments. And that's the great thing about serialized storytelling is, you know, it's not going to end in two hours. So you can build to really emotional moments and the subtext of betrayal by a nation for a black man deciding whether or not he wants to take on his mantle. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's why it's resonating so hard. So, so much with people because it's rooted in truth and it was given time to breathe. Yeah. Thinking about, uh, WandaVision in its own sort of therapy-esque exploration of someone's trauma and then thinking about both like the literary, literal therapy that we see Bucky go through in this episode and <laughs> whatever we hope Sam is going to go through in this series. How did Marvel know we would need so much therapy right now? I, I mean, <laughs> it, it is it, 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 listen, we were all, we're all uh, uh, citizens of this world and you know, everyone didn't. Everyone sits in that writers' room together and creates, and then goes out into the real world. Yeah. And the, and again, the tr- you you can't be fake. And st- if you want to tell a great story, 
you can't be fake. So, you know, if this, if this whole planet don't need therapy right now, then I don't know when it does. Absolutely. Um, something that, uh, Kevin Feige told me about when they were plotting out WandaVision, sorry to keep referring to WandaVision, but that's like my understanding of how Marvel TV works. Right. And so when they're, when they're plotting out WandaVision, they have this and, and, you know, end game and infinity war for that matter, they have this sort of bucket of characters a wall of characters that they're pulling from. So when you're planning out this show, you know, that you have Falcon and the winter soldier, how do you, how soon do you decide you want to Sharon Carter or you want a Zemo and you want to pull them into this story? It, I, I'm glad you brought that up. It was fun, man. It was. So when I showed up, Marvel already had like these arenas, like here's three different, completely different arenas that we think are interesting as far as like storytelling. Mm-hmm. What they knew most of all is we want a buddy two hander, right? Yeah. Um, which is a f- form of storytelling that I love. And then they give you this menu of characters that they're excited about. They don't make you pick none of them. Right. Right. But they're like, what do you want to do with them? And as you start to play with that menu, certain characters may disappear because they don't ever tell you what's happening in the MCU, but something happened in the MCU that that character is now disappearing Mm -hmm. and new characters who you might've asked about. And they said, no, no, you can't use them are now available. And that's sort of the fun as you start to do the 30,000 foot construction of this world. Yeah. That's sort of the fun of it is the array of characters that you get to choose from and the ones you don't get to choose from. You know what I'm saying? Cause you're mm-hmm. like, uh Oh, something's going on there. Oh, I wonder why they went off the menu. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fun. Um, and, and, you know, I imagine those expect, you know, when you talk about, sharing this almost toy box with all these other um, projects that are going on simultaneously. I imagine those expectations are laid out to you. So sort of from the jump, when you come on this project, they're like, okay, we're going to give you these toys. They might go away. New ones might come back. That's just how it's going to work. In, in the, this, the, you know. But the, the, the tone of that is yes, but you have to appreciate who's saying it. They've been working with creatives now for 15 years. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah they know how to vibe out with you and make that process feel creative. And they, and they know that it, they, they really do try to avoid mandates. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And, and, and yeah, it, it is there, but they're very, very direct. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not going to hide that you are joining something that's bigger than you and already happening. Yeah. It is a moving train and you get to decorate your car on this train yeah however you want except for wait a minute one of the cars behind you change what you know what i'm saying this yeah. here yeah so now they're they're very very direct about it but their their bedside manner is great <laughs> um i want to ask you about another scene um which is uh sam in the bank and uh, that conversation there there's a mention of of the of this uh banker who says, did you used to play for LSU? And it, you know, putting it in that sort of sports context reminded me of that early scene in one night in Miami, the Jim Brown on the porch scene, right? Where Bo Bridges is being like really nice to him, but says, won't let him inside. And the way that we treat America has treated black athletes as in we'll watch you play, but you're not invited in the house. Was that uh, an intention in that moment? Was that an intentional connection you were trying to make? Yeah, it's funny because 
we were just writing a black experience Mm -hmm. and those athletes and those Harvard professors and those presidents of the United States who have that same experience. Yeah. That's just a black experience. And the reason it's loud when it happens to an athlete is it reminds this country that you're still black, no matter what, no matter how many hundreds of millions of dollars they pay in you, mm-hmm. no matter how many fans you have around the planet, this country's not forgetting that you're black. And so when we write the bank scene, you can't hide from the fact that Sam is black and you can't hide from the fact that he's a superhero. That's going to naturally create the scene you saw. And then the comparisons to athletes, we wasn't even aware of that. But of course, it's the same thing yeah. because Sam is famous, but Sam is black. And America is still America. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the chat. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Welcome back, Anthony. Welcome. We are no longer in the hex. Ah, we are... making the hex happen, huh? <laughs> We're trotting around the globe. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a born identity esque uh, mission that we are on right now. Welcome to Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Falcon and the Winter Soldier and the Flying Squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> That'll make sense uh, if you've seen the opening of the movie <laughs> or the, of the series, I should say. It felt like a movie. It felt. It, I have to say, maybe it was the TV motif of. Uh, Wanda Vision, but uh, yeah, this felt much more of a piece with some of the traditional Marvel movies. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely what they're going for with that first big Falcon um, action set piece, which which was, you know, a dazzle for the eye. Um, how? Do you, but I think you know, as we discussed over the Wanda Vision finale, that's not always my favorite part mm-hmm. of of a marvel movie um but i definitely think that that's what they're going for and and when you think about this being uh, this show is supposed to be the first one out you know what i mean the first one to premiere right. on disney plus you can see how front loading it with that falcon action set piece is like see there's no difference between going to see one of these things in the movie theater and watching mm. this at home we're mm-hmm. giving you the same level of excitement and entertainment yeah it just had that shadowy glass and steel feel too there were so many scenes that were like it just felt like uh especially the dc based scenes um uh, and i liked it it was kind of fun to be back and and experience it but uh um definitely a change of pace from one vision did you like the episode overall yeah i enjoyed it uh it definitely it also leaves you it's i'm i guess the thing that felt unusual was i'm a little more used to getting the full story from Marvel when it feels like a, a 
like a Marvel movie. WandaVision, mm-hmm. it was literally episodic <laughs> for for the first, you know, several episodes. And so uh, I was like, and it was building a mystery each time. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, I was just kind of like, oh, oh, yeah, uh, credits are rolling now. This is just the first chapter. So uh, it felt a little strange, but I'm, but I'm down for it. I'm definitely want to know more. And I would, I, I'm eager for um, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier to actually uh, cross paths. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> people. People have already heard me say this to Richard, but like, you know, the the the, the show is being sold as this buddy action comedy in the in the vein of. Like 48 um, hours or something. Or, 48 you know. hours, rush hour, lethal weapon, et cetera. And um, to have your buddy, cops buddy, action heroes separate for the whole first episode is um, – I'm just hoping it re- it remedies really quickly in the, yeah. in the second episode, which it seems to because um, it, to my, you know, my interpretation is that um, Sam sees this – big guy with long hair does not know that Bucky got a haircut a super powered guy and is a little worried that he's winter soldiering again and mm-hmm. is going to go say, say hey is have you been to Switzerland recently um oh you cut your hair interesting and these two um, don't like so. each other you know they don't they don't they mm-hmm. don't so you know I think yeah I think Sam would be quick to uh, assume that Buck might be back to his old ways, but we will talk about all of that. Do you want to start with those flag smashers? Where do you want to start with our sort of like comic book analysis of this episode? Well, let's start with Bat Rock the Leaper because we get some actual leaping. Oh, mon dieu. <laughs> <laughs> it is Bat Rock. Have you ever talked to the actor who plays Bat Rock the Leaper, Georges St. Pierre? No, I didn't. Oh, it is a fierce uh, feast for the ears, my friend. His accent is so chewy and delicious. Oh, um, good. Yeah, Batroc, he is back. Uh, so where do we know him from before uh, Anthony? He was uh, badly beaten by uh, <laughs> Captain America on a boat in the original Winter Soldier movie. Captain, er, Yeah, the Captain America Winter Soldier film. And... Um, you know, he's uh, what do, how would you describe him? Sort of like international terrorist, no good Nick. Um, he's, if you've ever seen the comments, he has an outrageous mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, he's yeah, yeah, you know, like a cat burglar ne'er do well sort of thing. And in, in the movies, he's more of like a uh, yeah, a, a terrorist, like, uh, um, grimy, deadly Euro trash. <laughs> <laughs> he has a distinctive purple and gold jacket that he wore in the Winter Soldier, and he is hanging on to that jacket. He still has it uh, in this episode. Um, I think he's here for a number of reasons, but primarily to set up a few visual parallels between Sam and Steve. Mm-hmm. To, you know, we see like <clears throat> the way that Sam falls out of a plane <laughs> reminds me of the opening of Winter Soldier where Cap just jumps out without a parachute. Yep. Um, you know, fighting Batrock, uh, some of the Smithsonian stuff. I feel like we're, um, you know, they're really trying to show us. I talked to Malcolm Spellman a little bit. Folks will have heard me say this already, but, you know, set up an intentional vision. Like Sam already is more Steve than he probably truly understands um yeah and, and he's and- he's looking much more comic booky uh in this uh project his wings Samus? yeah sam like the wings you know uh uh 
the Falcon always had kind of like a white and red motif going on in the comics, mm-hmm. and that um, the, you know, the Marvel it, it includes some some bright colors in the costumes, but they tend to make try to make things seem a little more realistic. And now uh, the wings and and the gear he wears starting to look a lot more like the comics. Do you agree? Yeah, I can see that. Um, everything's gotten a little bit of a of an upgrade. Something they like to do. Uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is so that they can sell new toys right. every time they have a new movie or TV There's show. There's always a new Iron Man suit. There's a new yeah. cap uniform. There's always a you yeah. know, new Black Widow so, outfit. Yeah, so. Right. So you can get that version of the Black Widow action figure. Um, but uh, the shield's different, too. Did you notice? There's a lot of questions about this shield and where it came from. Uh, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I did notice that. It's funny because... You know, having been on the sets of these movies, I've gotten up close to that shield, and there are obviously very many versions of it. Oh, um, shield brag. Okay. Shield brag, yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, like, I was there during the Bat Rock, the Leaper battle, uh, <gasps> but I didn't talk to them. Yeah, which was not on a boat. It was a parking lot in a, like, adjacent to the... Um, to the bay in law i think it was in long beach <laughs> and they just like stacked up these shipping containers and draped giant green um like curtains over them and it's just a parking lot like they're literally you're and- telling me the lemurian star is a parking it's lot a parking lot <laughs> it's a parking lot and you know it was so it was just cap and it was uh um chris evans and his stuntman just beating the crap out of a bunch of uh stuntmen extras as the you know the crew uh-huh. and um it was fun because I, I one of my favorite stories um was uh uh you know on that set getting to uh um meet the uh uh, uh prop master for the uh for the marvel universe or one of the uh-huh. prop masters um um and he had like this little cart he was pushing around and there were like a dozen different captain america uh, shields in it his name's russell bobbitt and he you know he turns up uh in the credits of almost all the marvel movies he you know he, he makes the gadgets mm-hmm. the gear the and cube. uh you know he he was like i like to call him like the uh the armorer for the superheroes like <laughs> <laughs> sure. you know and he, he's always got the weapons and they, so he had like these you know what they call the hero shield which is the one they use for the close-ups and then he had yeah. like the rubber shield which is the one you use to bonk your fellow stuntman over the head <laughs> and like right. you know and then they have the kind of in-between shields which are plastic and there are several of them because every time you hit someone the paint on it gets chipped like given that cap's shield is supposed to be indestructible it's very destructible <laughs> like you use it once it's like a kleenex and you've got to like replace it so they're very careful with that um with that shield. And I noticed there are like these strange little lines on the interior of the white star that are not, were not there before. So I'm not quite sure. I don't know what's going on with this. shield. Uh, There were, so there were lines. It's, it's, it's the difference is very slight, but there were lines on the interior of the star in, in Steve's version. They were just finer and a little different. And this one, you've got that, like the center, there's, there's a, it looks like it opens like a little mystery box or something. I right? know. Like, and it, like if it's, you know, Sam, like, does it open like the back of Sam's, you know, 
wings <laughs> to give him a red wing sort of thing. There's also a line around the center, the white ring of this shield. There's like um a sort of perforated line there, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting. Um, I was, I was sort of trying to track the shield when I was rewatching some of the movies. Um, because, you know, Cap loses it. He, he drops it at the end of, uh, Civil War. It's got Black Panther's, uh, claw marks in it. He has scratched a claw mark with his vibranium claws, uh, into the shield. And Tony takes it. And then Tony not only, like, keeps it in his garage for years and years and years, right? But he buffs out that scratch and repaints it. So when he brings it back to Steve in Endgame, it is like it's got the claw marks buffed out of it and it is freshly painted. And I just love to like imagine Tony angrily repainting it because he's got so many feelings about yeah. that shield and cap. Uh, and then and, and it does Fan- have a paint job like because it is vibranium. In, in right. It. So, it you know, the red, white and blue is, uh, you know. Is a, a little a bit choice. of pizzazz that the, yeah. <laughs> you know, a little flair that he adds to the uh, to the shield. So you know, and it can be touched up and repaired and adjusted. So it's the same shield. Uh, I guess it's the very ship of Theseus. If you replace every piece of the Captain America shield, is it still well, Captain America's shield? Callback. So that's, that's the question. Beautiful, beautiful callback. That's the question. Like he he gives the shield to Cap at Endgame. Thanos. Uh, clobbers it to bits and pieces shattered and then you know cap goes back through time retires comes back as old cap gives sam a shield where did that shield come from where is that shield from is it from time is it from an alternate timeline i guess here's the problem here's the main problem with old man steve Mm. is my heart really loves that end to end game for steve Love that. I'm, I'm, I'm as romantic as anyone watching him dance with Peggy. Lovely stuff. Mm-hmm. It causes a lot of logistical <laughs> issues with the MCU. Uh, one of which is where did the shield come from? So, right. So he where didn't did the have the shield from? when he went back in time to replace the no. infinity stones. No. So where did he pick this shield up? Where did it Where did he get from? the shield? Yeah. Good question. And he says, uh, it feels like it belongs to someone else. And yeah. Cap says, what, you're wrong, or it doesn't? Or it's no, like, yeah, yeah. Something like that? Yeah. I yeah. mean... So I'm not, I'm not trying to get too conspiracy theory about the shield. First of all, I think the redesign does have as much to do with, like, selling toys as anything else. But um, but I just have... I have some time travel questions and some proprietary shield questions. You know what I mean? Is that literally Steve's shield? Is it a shield he had built, especially for Sam? I like it better if it's Steve's shield. Uh, but you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll have to see, I guess. Yeah, that's nice. It's nice. The idea of handing something down, you know, passing it on, but maybe it literally, maybe it literally is Sam's maybe. shield, like from the future or from the past or who knows where. Maybe. And speaking know. of old Steve, we don't know if he's hanging around somewhere right now. My <laughs> wife thought when she saw, um, Sam getting dressed in his Sunday best, at the beginning of the movie of the series, she's like, "Oh, he's going to Captain America's funeral." <laughs> yeah, yeah. There have <laughs> been some thoughts that we might see that at some point, but not yet. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, let's talk about. Uh, do you want to talk about the flag smashers next? Let's smash some flags, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So if if the if Captain America is is meant to be this embodiment of a country, mm-hmm. and there's some question, as Malcolm Spellman said in our interview, there's some questions from from uh, uh, let's say inside the club and outside the club as to whether or not a black man should be representing America. There's the like terrible racist view that a black man shouldn't be uh captain america this is and among, then there's the, among the like the people right around you're talking about like among real people among quote-unquote fans no uh no i was more talking, talking about, about within like universe like this. within the universe like it, you know could an interpretation of of what happens here where the government takes the shield from sam and gives it to someone else an interpretation and it's not a wild one uh, is that his race is a factor and whether or not they oh. feel like he's suitable to be Captain America. That was right? a galling moment in yeah. the show when yes. it's like Sam sees that this thing that he has basically like, you know, Indiana Jones, like it belongs, it belongs in a museum. museum. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. he has given this up as a like icon or a memento of what uh, uh, Steve Rogers did. And then to see it in someone else's hands as a, as a tool again, like, uh no that was that was so aggra- ag so irritating not in a way of uh where i'm like oh that's bad writing but i think in, in a way that's really good writing because i think it's, yeah it's appalling that they would give that to someone else it's not right so and so you're so saying s- there are people in the government who would be like yes rather than have an african-american be our hero um we'll give it to this white guy because that's you right, know, and there's some options. other there's some other reasons uh, outside of race that they might make that decision, like uh, the fact that you know Sam was technically a war criminal for a little while <laughs> with the Sokovia Accords and stuff like that. <laughs> who wasn't really? <laughs> you know, hasn't who done hasn't? a little bit of light war crimes <laughs> in the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe? You know, right? So they could they could they could sort of duck behind that if they wanted to, but I think you know this this show is very much interested in all all reasons, and and race certainly could be a reason, but I think. The really interesting point that Malcolm Spellman was making to me is that um, there might be some, you know, um, how how do I put this? There might be uh, reasons why Sam as a black man would not want to be Captain America outside of am I worthy of the shield? More like, is this this a country that has rejected me and mine? Uh, is this a country I feel comfortable wearing its colors? Yeah, I thought they set that up really well uh, by showing Sam's family and his sister and getting into his parents' history and uh, um, uh, putting a little bit of Anthony Mackie into the character, uh, to be honest. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll drop another set visit story on you in a, in a Do moment. It. But like... Uh, <laughs> But I love that he, you know, he he goes to get a get a loan and gets rejected. Like that's yeah. such a a common story for decades. Uh, for you know, a, 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 as part of the African American experience, that like you can't get a loan. Like you're just there's something about you that makes the bank not want to take a chance on you. And um, it often has to do with something like the color of your skin. And so. Um, and yet that guy wanted his picture taken with him, right? So it's that whole thing of uh, 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 the white person liking black culture. Like they like the singer, the musician, the athlete, like the right. actor. Uh, right. 
but they or the civil rights leader, but they don't really care about the people or the on a, care about you on a personal basis, you know. And uh, so the, the the bank loan officer wants a selfie, but he doesn't actually want to give the bank loan like that. I thought another like really galling scene, and I think it does set up why Sam might feel like maybe this. What am I fighting for this country for? You know, this is something Spike Lee explores in The Five Bloods. What do you, you're fighting for a country that doesn't value your life. You're putting your life on the line, and that life doesn't matter back home. Um, a, a powerful, important, resonant, and timely uh, subject that's unfortunately been timely for a really long time. Um, there's this, yeah, there's anyway. this group. Great quote from no, no no I I mean I I agree with I agree with everything you said. There's this great quote from um, Marcus McFeely who wrote all of the Captain America films um, around the time of the Winter Soldier, and the Winter Soldier, of course, was also an examination of this like infestation of Hydra in the U.S. government, right? Um, and you know, so <laughs> Nazis in the US government? Yeah, how could, how could that be? Um, but this is something they said about the nature of a Captain America film. He's a man named after a country, and eventually you've got to check in on the state of the country. Um, that's an interview they gave Vulture. So this idea that like every time we think about Captain America in World War II, um, post Battle of New York, post Sokovia, um, we have to check in on what is going on with that country that he takes his name from. And so just trying to think about these films as like, <laughs> you think there was like, there was the post post Bush MCU, which is just like, because Iron Man launches like right when mm-hmm. uh, Obama is elected, right? That's still kind of just like reaction, reacting to Bush era MCU. You've got Obama era MCU, and what we are in right now is like Trump era Trump reaction MCU. Mm-hmm. That's where we are right now. And so I was just thinking, do you want to hear my like big brain theory about yeah. about about the blip? <laughs> the blip is this five year period of time, the snap, the blip, whatever you want to call it. This five year period of time of trauma for the world where we lost half the population. <laughs> and I started oh. to be like, uh oh, this is starting to feels- make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this feels like. Honestly, honestly, whatever side of of I really do feel this. Whatever side of of the fence you were on during the Trump administration, yeah, there are ways in which you felt like you lost the other half of America because yeah. we could not have conversations. So I think this applies even to Trump fans. But to anyone, I will say, like at least my experience was, it felt like half of America was unreachable. In that time, God, you're and right. it's not like we're I never not thought still... of this before. This is really good, Joanna. <laughs> well, it's not like we're it's not like we're not still divided. Um, uh, but it just feels like we can actually have some conversations now. Whereas, just like it was like that person was gone. That's what it felt like to me, anyway. So that's I was just sort of thinking about like this being like a post blip, post Trump. Where do we go from here? Uh, sort yeah. of state of existence. Um. I would apologize for getting so political on this podcast, but this is it's 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 Captain America. You have to get political. So uh here we are. And this show is it really intends to be political. So to that end, let's talk about the fl- the flag smashers. Well, can, uh, can we, we stick with Sam for just a minute there? Oh, of course. Um, of one course, more yeah. thing about him. Yeah. Um 
uh, he's the first African-American superhero in the Marvel Universe. and uh, Not cinematic universe, but the Marvel Comics universe. And that distinction is important because T'Challa and Black Panther is the first black superhero. And one of the things that I've always had to make sure to note with like a new copy editor or something on a story is like never change um, Black Panther's designation to like call him, never call him African-American, right? Because he's not American. T'Challa and the appeal and the wonder and delight of that character is that he comes from Wakanda and that Wakanda is a country that's never been conquered, that it's had its independence, uh, uh, throughout history and it's um it's not tainted by colonialism and um and so he's the f- historic first black superhero sam wilson is the first h- historic first african american hero so the first like american born uh um native son to the united states who becomes uh, a superhero who develops superpowers with his wings and his abilities. And I think that's a really important designation, right? I mean, would you agree? Uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, yeah, what makes ma- him special ma- and, and uh- worth <laughs> noting. And so picking up the mantle of Captain America, I think is, uh, it puts him in an interesting position, right? <laughs> yeah. In, in talking about the various villains uh, that we may or may not see on the show, mm-hmm. Malcolm Swellman was saying that, um, you know, we talked about Black Panther a little and he was like, making that distinction he's like t'challa is um am i repeating something that's in your interview no 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 because it wasn't about sam but he was saying t'challa was a black he's an african Mm -hmm. and he was saying killmonger is a black american and that their that their worldviews and sensibilities would be different makes a lot of sense and so he was saying um that they um posted killmonger's speech at the end of black panther sort of up as their guiding principle for this show Hmm. um that that black american perspective which i think is interesting so So. just as iron man changed oh stick with sam just one moment longer like just as iron man changed uh even his comic book persona after robert Downey jr took over the role and really redefined that character like you notice uh iron man and tony stark in the comics and in like the kitty friendly cartoons, like becoming much more RGJ. Yeah. What I like about this is that they have given uh, Sam some of Anthony Mackie's personality and his characteristics. Uh, Sam Wilson was a New Yorker and, and like, you know, he was a protector of people on the streets of New York. That was his sort of origin, uh, a soldier, but like that was where he, uh, he lived like a uh, literally like a falcon does on the skyscrapers of uh, New York City, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, Anthony Mackie is from New Orleans, from Louisiana, and like okay, so here's my I, I I hinted that I had a little like set visit story. So on the set of Endgame, I'm sorry, on the set of in, in, it was Infinity War, uh, that was the scene they were actually shooting, um, uh, but they did them kind of simultaneously. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're in the we're in the wilds of Wakanda when Thanos arrives to rip the Mind Stone out of the forehead of uh, of Vision. Right, that's mm-hmm. the scene I'm watching being shot, 
uh, it's actually a horse farm in Georgia <laughs> and like that they've turned into like the woods, the forests of Wakanda. Amazing. And there was like, um, because there are these great fields and all and a lot of rain there and water flows, like they have these lakes that gather the water and Anthony Mackie loves to fish. So in between his scenes uh, and setups, he would like peel back the Falcon armor kind of almost like bunched around his waist <laughs> like <laughs> he would like andy griffith show style like pull his fishing rod <laughs> out and walk like 50 feet to the lakeside uh -huh. and like he would just be catching fish in this lake like in, in his downtime between shooting and like that was where i interviewed him he was like oh come on yeah that was, I, so i'm opie he's andy griffith we're we're walking down to the lake <laughs> together uh, instead of a fishing pole i have my little recorder and uh, one of my favorite little things uh, that I got to um, – I, I like to tease a little bit sometimes on when I was on social media was I, I tweeted out – I couldn't say like I was on the set of the Avengers movie because that was coming you know months down the line. But I just tweeted out how I was in Georgia and standing by a lake and watched – uh, a falcon pull a fish out of the water and just what a nice, natural, <laughs> beautiful setting this was. And then like a year later, I got to post the picture I took of Anthony Mackie with his fishing pole. And I was like, actually, this is what I was talking about. He is the falcon that got the fish in the, in the lake. So a little in joke for the, uh, you know, for the social media peeps. But um, they made <laughs> they made Sam Wilson a uh, uh, a fisherman. Right, yeah. or the son of fishermen, mm -hmm. and so I, I. Anyway, that's my little random weird story about uh, how Anthony Mackie's love of fishing and his, and he even said like, "Hey, I'm a you know I'm a New Orleans guy. I just love to catch my own dinner. You know, <laughs> like I just love fishing." And uh, they, they, I love that they gave that to like Sam's family and made that a part of who he is on the show. Rant over. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I do love knowing that, and I do love when they put. Um as much of the actor into the into the story as possible mm -hmm. like anthony mackie definitely does have that like uh sam wilson like uh i don't know uh, bravado energy <laughs> that he carries mm -hmm. with him um all right now can i talk about the flag smashers yes yes, yes. <laughs> okay so if captain america is a hero defined by a nation the flag smashers uh in the comic books it's the flag smasher has been the name of two different supervillains mm -hmm. and um basically this flag smasher is this terrorist who uh does not believe that there should be nations i was saying anti-nationalist to uh anthony before we started recording and he's like you need to clarify that because that sounds like he's against nazis and he may be but uh, mostly he's just against <laughs> nations so like um, anti-nations yeah I, when i hear nationalist <laughs> i think of like stephen miller or steve i mean Bannon yeah but nationalism like that, yeah. before it was white supremacy mm -hmm. was just um you know believing in your your nation uh so so that's this person in the comics who actually didn't wind up staying a bad guy and that's the truth of a lot of these bad guys that we're going to talk about mm -hmm. um but so they've turned the flag smasher into the flag smashers and and sort of lampshaded that silly old marvel uh name a little bit in the context of the episode with sam saying like oh do bad you know bad guys give themselves bad names now um Anyway, there's there's a leader of this group. Uh, Sam's new pal, Lieutenant Torres, thinks it's this big guy with long, dark hair who in the credits is credited as someone named Dovich, played by Desmond. Um, 
I'm tempted to say Chaim because of Yiddish, but it's probably Chaim, something like that. Um, and, uh, that's who Torres thinks is the leader. But there's another person credited <laughs> in for this episode as Carly Morgenthau. And Carl Morgenthau is the name of the flag smasher in the comics. So we've got a character named Carly Morgenthau, played by the actress Erin Kellerman, who people might know as Emphis Nest mm-hmm. from the um the solo film. Uh you shall know her from by Star her Wars dis- solo film. Not yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'd Star Wars a Star solo Wars story. Film. Yes. Uh <laughs> whatever it's called. Solo a Star Wars story. Um you'll know her by her red curly hair. So she, you'll see her handing out the masks. So I believe that she's probably the actual real leader. Um, Torres makes an assumption about sort of might is right. The strongest guy in the room is going to be the mm-hmm. leader. But I think it is this woman handing out the masks that is the leader of the Flag Smashers. Uh, though this guy, uh, it, you know, he's exhibiting some super soldier serum type strength. So we got some questions like where did this guy get his powers? Who is mm-hmm. this guy? You know? Good question, and I agree with your assessment there. Circle gets a square, right? <laughs> yes, I agree. You know, that's got to be Carl. Carl in in a new form, as a, um, as um, the uh, as Carly. It's Carly. Mm-hmm. Um, this character of Dovich, who's doing a lot of kicking and punching, is is I think int- you know intentionally supposed to look like he might be Bucky, which might give Sam a reason to go chase Bucky down to be like, hey, have you been doing mm. some bad stuff in Switzerland, my guy? Um, you backsliding? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's that's a hair-based assumption that he's making there. <laughs> uh, he does not know that Bucky got a haircut. So anyway, uh, we hopefully we'll see, uh, we'll see Sam and Bucky uh, united soon. Um, but I do want to talk about, while we're on the subject of the super soldier serum, I do want to talk about something else that we haven't seen in the show yet, but I just want to get mm-hmm. us starting talking about. Uh, and this is, um, the comic book that Malcolm Spellman recommended, which is Truth, colon, Red, White, and Black, which is, um, a Captain America comic from, I believe, 2003. And, uh, it is about the origin of a, uh, black Captain America. And it came out of this idea, um, where, uh, you know, the powers that be at Marvel at the time th- were thinking it would be really intriguing and complicated to mm-hmm. talk about the optics of having a black man wearing the Captain America costume. Um, Sam, Sam Wilson obviously has been Captain America in the comics, but I think they want to tell a different story. And this is about, this is based on the Tuskegee uh, experiments, uh, syphilis experiments, uh, uh, where mm-hmm. um, the U.S. government, uh, you know, experimented on uh, impoverished black people and lied to them. And it's one of the more horrific chapters in our history. And so they made this comic about the origin of the super soldier serum and how they tested it on 300 black soldiers before they gave it to Steve Rogers. Oh, and so wow. they created a black Captain America out of this sort of imperfect version. We've seen several imperfect versions of the super soldier serum before Bucky got one, uh, Bruce Banner got one, (laughs) you know what I mean? In the MCU, like the, the imperfect, the idea of the imperfect super soldier serum, like really only Steve got the, the, the pure, pure stuff or, or the right balance of stuff. And everyone else has gotten the kind of jankier version, uh, including um, Isaiah Bradley. And so Isaiah Bradley Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the fir- is the black Captain America the first Captain America? He's just um, 
it, it's it's a really sort very like sordid uh shadowy governmental backstory to this to this program which i think is was something really interesting that they did in 2003 um how that connects to the modern comics of the marvel universe is that isaiah has a grandson named eli bradley um elijah bradley who uh is is a superhero known as patriot uh and a member of the young avengers and actually, I think the leader of the Young Avengers for a while. Uh, and he has the his father's uh, or his grandfather's um, powers mm-hmm. because of a blood transfusion. So that is that his grandfather had to give him to to help him survive. So the question is, was Malcolm Spellman recommending I read that just because he thought it was a good book that I should read? This is something that <laughs> this is something that the creators on Lost did all the time that I found out, which is I don't know if you remember this at the at the like heyday frenzy of Lost fandom. Anytime a book showed up in the background of a shot, people would go out and buy that book. And I know that because I was working in bookstores at the time and we would just sell out of those books. If it showed up in the background of a Lost shot, we would sell out of that book immediately. Um mm. And that's just a power that certain creators have and, uh, and that they would use it sometimes to actually like promote books that they just thought people should read. Uh, it wasn't necessarily connected. So I was like, there's on the one hand, maybe Malcolm Spellman was just like, I have the power right now to get a bunch of people to read a Captain America comic book. I'm going to pick this yeah. cool one, you know, or, um, Isaiah and Eli will be in this show at one point which I also see is very possible. If Sam discovers the truth behind the, the history of the super soldier serum and Captain America in general, um, that could inform his complicated feelings around the, the name and the shield, et cetera. Do you know? uh, I think that's, that's some powerful storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could be potentially, uh, we could get a whole episode, um, you know, in the vein of, of uh, Watchmen or Lovecraft Country that like gives us a, a chapter of U.S. history told through the lens of genre storytelling. Uh, one casting thing I will note is that Carl Lumley, who I know best from uh, Alias, but I think was also on Supergirl, uh, an actor that I really love. Uh, yeah, has he's been, great. Has, yeah, has been cast in a mystery role. That's mm. confirmed that he's in the show. We just don't know as who. And I would, I'd say... He would make a great Isaiah Bradley. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I could see that know. for sure. I mean, speaking of sort of broader big brain metaphors, yeah, yeah, yeah. I found something similar in the uh, the experience that uh, that Winter Soldier goes through in this episode. You know, mm. he's filled with regret about his past and yeah. things he did and maybe wasn't fully in control of, but still, it was him doing it. And, um, you know, I think that's a pretty strong metaphor for where we are now, especially uh, white Americans who, you know, we might mean well, but there's the whole question of uh, privilege and a whole question of your past and what you feel and what you've said or what you've allowed and what was in your culture. You know, we're doing a whole reckoning right now with things that were funny quote unquote in the past you know in terms of the way you know uh, characters were depicted who were different from white americans um you know whether it's uh uh in a dr seuss book or uh in, in an old 80s comedy or something like that 
And I think it's, I think people who have good hearts, you know, they, they reexamine themselves. And I think, you know, it's clear that Bucky Barnes is a, is a good guy, right? He, he is met, he was brainwashed. He was, you could say, uh, he learned a lot of wrong things, right? And perpetuated a lot of terrible things. Now we're not all guilty of murder, right? We don't smash up a hotel and kill someone's, uh, scientist's son, uh, because we've been brainwashed, but I think there are lots of microaggressions and cruelties that that we all perpetuate. That if you are a good person, you'll look, you'll reexamine yourself. And you know, I found that to be a kind of moving part of this story. Do you think I'm reading too much into it? I don't think there's such thing on this podcast as reading too much into yeah. things. So I, I like that. I also liked to think about it's that whole oh my god, what have I done? Like what have I allowed? What's you know? Yeah, and I... making amends, trying mm-hmm. to make amends, and like how exactly do you do that? Yeah, do you do it gracefully or do you do it clumsily? Um, Bucky's uh, version was a little clumsy uh, this episode, mm-hmm. but um. I really love Sebastian Stan in this episode. I thought he was incredible. Um, <laughs> he was. And for a moment of levity, I think, when he's looking at the, I don't know what it's called, the little cat with the moving arm that you see yeah. in yeah, yeah. some restaurants. Like, uh, like I don't know. There's just something about the mechanical arm and Bucky oh, yeah, yeah. looking at it that I thought was pretty, that was pretty funny. You know? Yeah. Am I just another cat with a mechanical arm? <laughs> <laughs> Are we all? Um, I also think, like, if, you, if you're going to talk about Cap's, sort of some of Cap's Winter Soldier uh, stuff, story, uh, actions put onto Sam in this episode, you have to talk about how it's put onto Bucky as well, because this whole, like, you need a girlfriend thing, I'm 100 years old, I don't know how to talk to girls, that's that's Steve's story in Winter Soldier as well, right? So it's it's like the cat, it's like Steve refracted through the his two friends like in this in this episode, right? Um, they're both going through their own like sort of Steve stuff, or maybe and, they don't want to talk to girls, you know? Maybe and that's fine. That's fine. He doesn't have to. He does not. You know, he doesn't have to have a girlfriend. Well, there's um, just that uh, theory that the that 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 Bucky and and um, uh, Steve are. Uh, have a, a oh, deeper affection, I mean, you know? I'm, Maybe a, I'm a big Bucky Steve Stucky fan myself. Um, Stucky, I haven't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's called Stucky. Name. I'm yeah. a big, I'm a big no. Stucky fan, but they have like aggressively um, straightened Steve out by making Peggy his like end all be all. Um, yeah, I guess so. Right. I, I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I mean, Stucky lives on in my heart. Uh, I'm just saying the MCU. Maybe there's pretty... a spectrum there is all I'm saying. It's oh, sure. I mean, uh, so I was it's rewatching not, the it's end. It's not one or the other, but maybe there's just a little like, yeah, <laughs> I, I was rewatching the end of Endgame and you know how like, um, I always got kind of salty how little Bucky Steve there is at the end because like Steve goes into the portal and uh, you know, he and he and Bucky say have a little goodbye, and then he comes back, and he really he only talk old man Steve only talks to Sam. Bucky sort of looks on from afar, gives an approving nod. He's not mad about the shield going to Sam, but like he doesn't talk to Steve. And I always felt like that was really weird to me because like Sam and 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 Bucky are yes both caps like really good friends, but like it's it's Bucky. And rewatching it, trying to give it as much like benefit of the doubt, I decide to read something extra into it, which is that like if if you. I think it's not hard to read into it that Bucky knows Steve isn't coming back at all uh, when he says goodbye to him. Yeah. And he says, I'm going to miss you. Not like, I'll see you in five seconds, but I'm going to miss you. Right. So like, so then I imagine that like Steve and Bucky had like 
one last beautiful night together as friends or whatever you prefer. <laughs> but like they talked about it and Steve's like, I think I'm not coming back. And he and Bucky talked about it and they like made their peace with it. And they said goodbye before the mm-hmm. night before. That's what I, that's what I've decided yeah. uh, is true. I, uh, I think they, I think Bucky was definitely in the know. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Two last things to talk about here. John Walker uh, or the Thunderbolts. Which one do you want to talk about first? Let's go with Thunderbolts. Okay, so <laughs> this Thunderbolts. Like a Jeopardy oh. category. I'll take Thunderbolts for one hundred, please. <laughs> All right. So if Eli Bradley, who's who's a young man, if he shows up in the show, that's going to be another tick on the box of a young Avengers team that they're possibly building. Right? We've talked about that before. How like. Um, there are young characters cropping up in all these D- Disney Plus shows and all these MCU films that are possibly building to a big Young Avengers crossover event with Miss Marvel and Kate Bishop and all these all these kids, right? Um, but there's also another um, crossover that we should be on the lookout for, um, and that is the Thunderbolts. The Thunderbolts um, are a, t- a really fascinating chapter in Marvel Comics history, where basically uh, a bunch of villains decided to pose as heroes, call themselves the Thunderbolts, um, so that they could, I don't know, do more villainy in plain sight by pretending to be heroes. Um, and then they liked being heroes so much that then they just kind of became heroes. <laughs> so the Thunderbolts are complicated. Are they a Suicide Squad-esque thing? Are they a New Avengers type thing? The answer is kind of both. So we might be looking for little uh, villains here and there who might get scooped up into a Thunderbolts team. And so in this series, we will have the return of Baron Zemo, Daniel Bruhl's character from uh, Civil War. Um, Zemo, who called himself, I think it's Citizen B. I think that's, uh, I'll need to look it back up. He is the founder of the Thunderbolts. He was the leader of the Thunderbolts. And he was the one who got the most mad when they decided they wanted to be good. Um, so Zemo, uh, friend or foe? I think that's the question we're going to have to ask out all of these characters. A friend or foe? And I think the answer, like Agatha in WandaVision, is going to be a complicated one. So. Yeah, but Zemo's default setting is foe, don't you think? Has been. Will it stay that way? Well, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I think I think so. I think okay. he's better as a villain. But that's me. I think he, every villain is better as a complicated villain. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, of course. You know. Um, and so I think, and and Zemo, I think, is one of the the most one of one of the best. I think that they did. Zemo is is somewhat background in Civil War in that film um, because, you know, the real fight comes from within the Avengers, right? But it's so good what he does. He's so smart. He's a master of disguise. Like, he's dogged. He's got a righteous, um, you know, motivation. Like, Zemo is... I love Zemo, and I love that we're getting more Zemo. Mm -hmm. So, Daniel Brule, always welcome. All right, lastly, let's talk about John Walker. And this, and for this, I'm going to hand it over to you uh, to kick us off, Anthony. John, Who is John Walker. Walker? Uh, Johnny Walker. Uh, <laughs> red, white, and blue. No um, relation. Yeah. No, he, um, uh, so he appears at the end as the individual that is given the shield that Sam generously donated to the museum. And he is presented as the new Captain America. Now, John Walker in the comics um, – you know he has uh he has turned up as a as a character primarily would you say u s agent was sort of his primary 
I have, you know identity in the comics. I know he's yeah uh, taking he's on got a couple a few of names. other like few yeah names. yeah. Everybody's got a couple of different <laughs> names. Um, yeah. But he, uh, which I don't think is a great superhero name, U.S. Agent. Like that just feels like mm, all right. Okay, it's not, but it's anyway, no Captain America, that's for sure. Yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. But I think this character is meant to be underwhelming in the comics. You know, there was like a question of whether anybody really wants this guy on their team. He's not a villain per se, not at all. But but like, yeah, just like he's just not. He's just nobody anyone wants around. And uh, you know, I, I think he's being set up as an antagonist, as a foil. Um, and uh, he's played by, by uh, excuse me, he's played by Wyatt Russell, who, uh, of course, is the uh, uh, child of uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. So he's got like famous Disney lineage. <laughs> Can I just say for a second, mm-hmm. I don't, I try not, to, I'm trying to be really loose and relaxed about how people cover shows that I cover and how mm-hmm. they do it differently. And there's a lot of videos online that call themselves Easter egg breakdowns. And I think that's great. I love an Easter egg. Um, and I usually don't get too nitpicky about what constitutes an Easter egg, mm-hmm. but in this case, I'm going to do it. <laughs> someone okay. called someone called Wyatt the Wyatt Russell casting an Easter egg because Kurt Russell played like Ego, and I was like, no, that's just two actors who are that's related a, to each other. It's not an Easter egg. What? All right. Anyway, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think this is a Kurt Russell Easter egg in the form of Wyatt Russell, but it could. Yeah, be he's not Ego's <laughs> son. That's. That's Star Lord, but like, yeah, I was thinking like also, you know, the computer wore tennis shoes, and the, the, you know, Kurt Russell. Yeah, oh no, no, he's, yeah, he started out as a kid actor, a teenage actor in Disney movies. So uh, uh, here he is on Disney Plus, uh, keeping it in the family. <laughs> so yeah, that's not an Easter egg, you know, that's just coincidence. Uh, so you know, all he does is he gets to walk out, and I don't. Th- I, this is nothing against Wyatt, who's a uh, 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 a very good-looking young man. Uh, I sound like a grandpa saying that, but like he—he's a handsome man, and uh, and yet I don't think he quite looks good in this suit. And I feel like it's uh, that they maybe make the 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 cowl kind of—it's a little too squashy for his face. It makes him look to me. You know who he looked like was the the character Sweet Chuck from the Police Academy films. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Wyatt, but I don't think he's meant to look necessarily like charismatic or enthralling in this outfit. There's something about John Walker as U.S. agent or the new Captain America that's just not doesn't quite work, right? And is that intentional? I mean, uh, he could be. Once again, I think all of our villains are going to be a little complicated in this. So is mm-hmm. is John Walker going to be the villain of this show? He might be. Um, it might very well be. Um, but I do think that we are supposed to, I mean, I know that we're supposed to be as, as sick in our stomachs as Sam is when we see him carrying that shield. We don't, regardless of whether or not, let's leave the entire comic book legacy of John Walker aside, which is complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be frustrated to see this guy in the costume holding the shield. Cause we don't know him. who's this guy thinking he could be captain America. We don't even know this guy. Um, like, you know, we know Sam and we know Bucky at least both of them have been captain America in the comics. Like, you know, but this is anyway. So, um, yeah, so I, I do think we're we're supposed to be like, who's that guy? This looks all wrong. 
Uh, and we don't know yet whether or not this this John Walker has superpowers. The one one of the comics eventually does. Um, but we don't know if that's the case here or if he's just like a propaganda prop the way that Steve was in First Avengers when he's going out in those like USO shows. There's a snippet in the trailer of of US agent John Walker um, or the new Captain America, however you want to call him, uh, running out onto like a football field during like a halftime show that looks very USO Captain America to me. So is he just like a propaganda tool? What's What's his deal here? We don't know yet. We don't know, but... I don't like it. <laughs> uh, exactly. A thousand percent. And I think that's where you're supposed to be. I don't know, but I don't like it. Yeah, so. you're not supposed there. to go, oh, good, finally. <laughs> um, last but not least, I mean, I just want to mention, shout out that Rhodey makes an appearance here. Oh, we yeah. knew that that was coming. Um, Don Cheadle said he was going to be in the show. We don't know if this is his only appearance. It might be. Um, you know, he'll have his own uh, Disney Plus show down the line. But I did like this moment. There has always been, you know, I watched this episode last week and then I went and did my rewatch of Winter Soldier, Civil War and um, Infinity War and Endgame. And I was sort of watching the Rhodey Sam relationship. I'm like, what's the foundation here for this relationship? And um, they have had this sort of like um, two military guys slash two black guys on the team sort of rapport they're often matched together because they can both be up in the air you know what i mean so like when it comes mm-hmm. to civil war fight it's falcon and it's um war machine <laughs> and um and when 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 bucky gets dusted at the end of infinity war mm-hmm. obviously it's steve who's like ah oh, my friend is now a pile of ash mm-hmm. um but when sam gets dusted it's roadie who's looking for him Who's calling out for Sam in the jungle? Right. So I do think that they have dropped a little a little breadcrumb trail of of it makes sense to me that Rhodey shows up here, um, and in, in this moment for Sam, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think all for all of those reasons, um, you know, they have their moment, and also like we said, this is a story about uh, how you as a soldier, as a defender of your nation, feel about the way your nation defends or doesn't you and people like you. And these two gentlemen share that history. And so uh, I think it's important to show them um, it's not necessarily the text of, of, of their interaction in this episode, but maybe it's a subtext, you know? All right. Last question before we go. Um, <laughs> as you knew they would at the press conference for Falcon and the Witcher Soldier, uh, Anthony Mackie and I think it's mostly Anthony Mackie were teasing that there were some surprises coming. So maybe some familiar faces. Who, who will the engineer be? <laughs> <laughs> who is the character that, uh, which actor will, 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 uh, appear in, uh, uh, with opposite Paul Bettany, who's one of his favorites of yesteryear. <laughs> and uh, Kev- Kevin Feige said something like, um, he was like, I mean, what if we said there weren't any surprises? Like, would you believe us? You know what I mean? So, um, so yes, some, some people are coming. Who are they? Uh, you know, is it going to be a huge deal? Who knows? Um, but given all we learned with WandaVision, keeping our expectations on a simmer, mm-hmm. um, do we have any like fun pie in the sky like thoughts or, or hopes for who we might see mm-hmm. uh, in Falcon Winter Soldier? Anthony Who might we see? I mean, the natural one would be: Is there any appearance of uh, Steve Rogers, old Steve Rogers? Yeah, old Steve. Yeah, sure. And I kind of think no, because I think 
the most powerful thing he can contribute to this story is his absence. Mm, yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, so mm. you know, we know that Sharon Carter's coming. That's mm-hmm. that's a fact. She's not in this episode, but we know she's coming. Um, <laughs> Will Batrock the Leaper return? He's okay. He fell out of that helicopter before it exploded. So. Oh yeah, Mon Dieu, he's fine. So I hope we see Batrock again. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get a little wild. Are you ready? <laughs> Yeah, all right. You uh, go wild. All right, we're gonna what? Like, let's say we get a whole flashback episode that is like the Isaiah Bradley origin. Mm-hmm. Let's say we could see Stanley Tucci as Erskine, oh. Erskine. Uh, oh. We could see Toby Jones as Arnim Zola. Uh, we could see the Red Skull. So, the kids love their Toby Jones. He sells uh, who, a lot of toys. <laughs> who doesn't love a Zola toy? Listen, when Zola shows up in Winter Soldier, it's one of the best things that happens. Um, mm-hmm. Zola is as ones and zeros in Winter Soldier. Come on. Um, so yeah, so 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 a Toby Jones cameo, you know, for the kids. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if if you have any, obviously, any theories, thoughts, ideas, hopes, dreams that you want to email us about, you can do so. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Anthony Bresdikin, until next time, where can folks find you? People can find me at uh, anthonymackeyfishingphotos.com <laughs> uh, and also at vanityfair.com. <laughs> Um, you can find me at vanityfair.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find Richard on Twitter at Rylaws. You can find Batrot the Leaper on Twitter at Incredible Mustache. Uh, <laughs> and you can, <laughs> you can find all of us back here next week for Falcon and the Winter Soldier, episode two. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.